Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, sometimes maybe you don't get thanked enough. What do you, do you work at a grocery store and no one says thank you to you? I worked at a grocery store in college. Old people, old people, they don't say thank you for anything. I'd be at the deli, be slicing turkey, slicing roast beef, slicing American cheese, maybe a Swiss every now and again. The old people would come in, they'd always get bologna. They'd get the bologna. They'd always, always get baby Swiss. I don't know what it is about old people and baby Swiss. I don't understand. They all love it. That's not the point, though. The point is, I appreciate you tuning in. Today on the podcast, we got the great, the powerful, the wonderful, the amazing, the outreach connoisseur, Dr. Natalie Willette. She's an astrophysicist. She is the coordinator for the Institute for Research on Exoplanets. It's a mouthful. Too many words. Sometimes in astrophysics, we do a lot of words. We establish a center. We name it a bunch of words. You got to say all the words in, in unison. Sometimes it's hard to say all the words in unison when your brain, like mine, is just like, it's just going so fast, like, like a machine gun of words coming out of my face. And when those words are more than like two syllables, it gets a little trippy and I start mixing words and I just say one long word that is actually all of my whole sentence combined. And that's not an efficient way to speak. Because then I have to explain what I meant to say the first time. And I have to chunk it up. And I have to speak slower. But I can't speak slower because my mouth only moves at one pace. It's this pace. The pace I'm talking at right now. But anyway, she is the coordinator for the Institute for Research on Exoplanets, IREX, at the University of Montreal. Okay? Up in Quebec. Is it cold? Yes. If you go outside without a shirt on in the wintertime, will you die? You will. Will people save you because you're in Canada and it's the nicest humans ever? Will they literally cut open their stomach to give you an organ if you need one and you're dying on the street? Yes, they will. I have seen Canadians sacrifice their life so that someone else can be happier. That's the Canadian way. I was up there one time. I had appendicitis and some dude on the street took his appendix out and he gave it to me. And I was like, it doesn't even work this way. You just need to remove mine. I don't need yours. And and he just walked off. That's how damn nice the Canadians are. She is also the Canadian Outreach Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, working with the Canadian Space Agency. Now, in this episode, we discuss exoplanets. Do you know that there are potentially 10 billion or more, that's just an estimate, or more exoplanets in the Milky Way galaxy alone? 10 billion, with a B, that's a 10 with nine zeros following it. A 10, nine zeros. Can you count that high? I bet when I was a kid, not I bet, why do I say I bet? It's the truth. When I was a kid, I would try to count to really high numbers, and I would only get to like 90, and I would give up, you know? Did you ever do that as a kid? Let me know in the comments. Do you ever like say, today I'm going to count to 6 million, and you start counting, and you get to 7, and you quit, and you quit because something else distracted you? That's my childhood. I try to do things, I get distracted, I do other things. Then I get distracted, I do something different. That's just how I do it. Okay, and apparently that's how I run this show too, because I haven't actually said a coherent sentence yet. But today on the podcast, we discuss exoplanets. There's 10 billion of them. Could there be life? How do we find them? Where are they? What methods do we use? What telescopes do we use? How do the telescopes work? What do they look for? What are the planets like? Are they like Earth? Are they like Jupiter? Are they close to their star? Are they far away? Do they have water? Do they have an atmosphere? How do we answer all these questions? Natalie tells us. Okay. Natalie tells us. What about the James Webb Space Telescope? I mentioned it, but what is it? Do you know? Do all of you know? Some of you don't. I know some of you don't, because I know who some of you are, okay? And I know that you're not in the field. You're 
normal, everyday people. Maybe you are the person working at the grocery store that I mentioned earlier. Do you know, sir, cutting baby Swiss for all the old people in your town? Do you know what the James Webb Space Telescope is? Well, we're here to tell you. Natalie will talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. What is so special about it? What makes it a first of its kind? Why is it so risky? It is one of the more risky space endeavors we've done ever. It's a $10 billion project. It's been delayed over and over and over and over and over again. I had the fort I, I was very fortunate to be able to visit the JWST while it was at Goddard Space Flight Center in, in Greenbelt, Maryland a couple years ago. I got to visit, I got to see it with my own eyes, and it's magnificent, it's enormous. What makes it so risky? It'll be traveling a very far distance away from Earth. It will be sitting in an area in space that is just unrepairable. You cannot repair the thing if it doesn't work. It's a very risky project. Natalie talks about the risk and reward that will follow. What will it look for? What will it find? And what telescopes will it replace? Okay? Furthermore, her research, her specific research, focuses on the formation and evolution of galaxies, particularly clusters of galaxies. We talk about galaxy clusters. What can you learn from them? What are they like? And we also talk about a different idea, a different, a change of pace, if you will. Women in physics, okay? There is a gender disparity in physics between women and men. There's a very clear gen. Why does it exist? And how do we combat it? And how, through a show like this, through education like this, can we introduce physics to more and more and more people? Not necessarily just women, but people of all communities, of all, you know, one of the things that I focus on, and it's kind of a more, I guess, unpopular topic, a more unpopular thing to talk about, is the way in which education disparages not just women, not just eth different ethnicities, but poor people in general, okay? And that includes poor white people. So we talk about the ways in which we can use our platform, this platform, education, to try to influence people and show them that they can become a scientist too. We talk about that. How do we do that? I think I have an idea, and I think you're listening to that idea right now, which is why it's even online. You want to know why? Because I made it, and I put it there. So you're welcome for that. All right, thank you for tuning in. Please, I mentioned 10 billion earlier. You know what 10 billion also represents? 10 billion also represents the number of stars you should give this podcast on Apple Podcasts. So go do that. It helps so much. Please, go rate it. Go review it. Maybe no one in your region has ever reviewed it, so it'll be the first one in your region. Where are you at? Italy? I don't know. Has anyone reviewed it in Italy? Someone from Italy will have to tell me when they go on to review it. So go now. If you have an iPhone, there's nothing, there's no reason that you shouldn't do it. I appreciate it if you do. All right. Also, Patreon, PayPal. What does 10 billion represent? It represents the amount of money I expect you to give me in US dollars on PayPal and Patreon. Go to thestateoftheuniverse.com. Subscribe. All right. This costs money to make. I don't charge you. I, there's no paywall here. But if you want to contribute to the efforts that I am embarking on, please do. And I appreciate it. And it goes a long way. All right. So with that being said, give it up, people. Give it up. Please, if you like the episode, comment on YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. Comment wherever you are. Send me a message. Ask a question. Tell me if you liked it. Tell me what questions you have. What wasn't answered. What are you happy that was answered? And with that being said, give it up for the great Dr. Natalie Willett. Exoplanets That's right. are something that has been incredibly exciting throughout my lifetime. But my knowledge of the history of science tells me that it always it hasn't always been something that's exciting. 
And in fact, it is something that maybe even five decades ago, the idea of exoplanetary research was like a fringe idea. The idea of studying other worlds was a fringe idea. It was something that a lot of people doubted the ability to actually do well. And a lot of people even doubted the the ability to actually detect exoplanets or to even more extreme states that they were even there to begin with. There was this, that we have this idea, um, history in the scientific community of thinking that we're special and we continue to knock down the barrier that we're special in, in any way, whether it be mm-hmm. Hubble finding island universes or in this case exoplanets. How have you seen the field of exoplanetary research change since you've been in it? I know you haven't been in it terribly long. You're not like I had Ray Weiss on here, and he was born in 1932. So he literally has seen every single progression of the scientific community of the modern day. Obviously, you're not like that. But have you seen a change? Have you seen a trend? Um, I mean, yes, I'm I'm a little bit younger, um, but the field of exoplanetary science, in terms of like actually studying exoplanets, is younger than I am. Mm-hmm. So when I was born, people were talking about the concept of exoplanets. Really, that's been going on since like the 16th century. Philosophers knew that these, or thought that these stars in the sky were other suns, Mm -hmm. and our sun has planets, so what's to stop these other stars from having planets too? But just trying to detect these exoplanets or take a picture of them seemed out of reach until the early to mid 90s and by that time i wasn't very old but i was born at least and so the field just exploded at that point and it exploded but it had like a really even bigger explosion when i was in the field in like 2010 when kepler the kepler space telescope started um started up its operations and then was detecting these thousands of exoplanets So it's kind of fascinating to be in a field where uh, you can you can see how young it is, and a lot of the people that are experts when they started in astronomy, they weren't even in this field because this field didn't exist. And on the other side, this is just a subfield of astronomy, which is arguably the oldest science in the world Mm -hmm. in humanity. So it, it it shows that we're living in a in a pretty exciting time for astronomy, where we're seeing this emerging new field, and we're talking about exoplanets, but you could also talk about gravitational waves, which yes. is like brand new, and mm-hmm. and I don't know, there's like this big resurgence in astronomy right now, and I'm everyone who is in astronomy is super excited about being in astronomy. It feels like a special time to be in astronomy. It does. It feels like a really special time, and you know. It really feels like a special time. I had a a good friend of mine, an ISS flight operator, on the show last week. And he NASA is doing this thing now where they are giving away a portion of their utilization of spaceflight to private companies or to commercial opportunities. So that normal private people can just go and buy a ticket to the ISS, per se. Um, and that, they're doing that specifically because for 20-ish years... They have literally just been associated with like aerospace and they have been less associated with science and they want to get back into the world of, man, this is an exciting time to be doing science. So we need to get back to doing science and get away from aerospace per se. And so it really is like this exciting resurgence. You see people, you mentioned that exoplanetary science is sort of a, a really new field in the broader context of astronomy. And you see people 
that have been in the field much longer than this subset of the field has existed. Do you deal with people who all along they knew, like they had an intuition that this would blow up and they've been working on it in silence for a long time and now they're finally getting to to reap the benefits of their hard work? I think that most of the people who work on it sort of stumbled into it. Mm-hmm. Even Even the first... So typically when we talk about the first exoplanet ever detected, the one that we talk about is in 1995, um, Pegasi B, 51B, and Mm -hmm. that was around like a sun-like star. But even before then, a few years before, we detected, well, we detected, astronomers detected. I say it all the time. uh, I know, a planet around a pulsar. Now you can sort of like split hairs on definition. Is it really an exoplanet if it's around a pulsar? You could argue that yes, but those people weren't looking for exoplanets. Right. They were just looking at pulsars just in general, mm-hmm. and, and they found a weird signal. And I think that's not only exoplanets. I think a lot of fields are born completely by accident out of like a serendipitous discovery that no one was really looking for. Yes. So I, I, I think of one of my colleagues who is the director of the institute where I work, and when he started off, he was like me, studying galaxies. And uh, he was very interested in it and studying interacting galaxies. And then in 1995, he was studying his galaxies. And then he saw this announcement that we have detected for the first time an exoplanet around a sun-like star. And it blew his mind and it completely redirected his his path, his career path. And I think a lot of, of the older people in the field are like that. They were focused on something else I don't know that many people who like all along were sort of in their corner, like scheming, like one day my, one day it'll be my time mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think a lot of people stumbled into it when the field exploded. Yes. And that is true for a lot of scientific su- subsets of the science that is astronomy today, like fast radio bursts as an example, or even pulsars, mm-hmm. you know, the very inception of pulsars with, with Jocelyn Bell started as a sort of serendipity. Yeah, um, exactly. The science of fast radio bursts with Duncan Lorimer was found serendipitously. Uh, there, there's so there's like an endless endless supply of things in the universe that have inspired us a, a field accidentally. And it's interesting how many exoplanets have we found now? It's approaching four thousand, or it might be over. It's over four thousand at this point in time. We we cr- like different catalogs count slightly different numbers because you know some are just like on the threshold of being candidates or being Mm -hmm. like confirmed or not but we a few months ago i think we officially passed four thousand. is that humbling it's it's humbling especially when you consider that like most of those have been in the past 10 years sure like the field of exoplanets has been around for 25 but we've discovered almost four thousand in the past 10 years alone Mm -hmm. and if you look on a map, often you can see Kepler does has done the bulk of that work. And if you look at the small amount of space Kepler has actually looked in and found that many, if we were looking at the entire galaxy, let alone the universe, it'd be so much more. So yes, mm-hmm. it is it is incredibly humbling and and I think it's important for humans to remember that we are but one planet out of many, many thousands, and if you go beyond what we already know, you know, hundreds of billions, essentially. Yeah, I, I will be showing that on, on the, if you guys are, if anyone's watching on the video, as opposed to the audio, 
Um, I will be showing what, what Natalie's talking about. The, the map, there's beautiful maps that people have made. I don't know if Kepler's ever put one out. They should. But I've, there's beautiful maps that have been made that show the location of all known exoplanets and where they are. And it's literally just like this tiny bubble confined around where the around sun is. Around the sun, is. yeah. And it, it is amazing to think, it just to extrapolate that. Just to extrapolate that number. Just take the 4,000. That's definitely not all of the exoplanets in that bubble, but it's a lot of them. It, just to extrapolate that to the entire galaxy is like mind-bogglingly large. Yeah. In, but insanely the, large. At the same time, when people mention the huge number of exoplanets that have been discovered, I always want to make a point to say that doesn't mean that there's a plan B out there necessarily right. for mm-hmm. us to screw up Earth. Because we have such a hard time finding an Earth-like planet, let alone an Earth-like planet, you know, with liquid water that's at the right temperature. And and Mm -hmm. we've yet to find any, you know, real sign of any kind of life. So there's lots and lots of planets. In that sense, we're not special. But it still seems like the conditions for life to exist are still very rare. So we still have to be careful. There's no no plan B still. Yeah, uh, you do have to preface that, you know, in today's world of, of yeah. climate science. You, yeah. I guess that's a good thing to say. I The number I always keep in my head is 1%. 1% of, plan- of exoplanets we find tend to be in the habitable zone. Um, it, and that's not taking into account any other conditions. That's just like, are they close enough to their star? Are they not too far away? Could they potentially have liquid water on the surface? And not saying they do, not saying they have an atmosphere, not saying they have any of the other prerequisites. But just one percent fit the bill, at least in terms of the the habitable zone. Is that a correct figure these days? Is that changing? Yeah, no, yeah. that's pretty much right. But it's so dicey when you talk about the habitable zone or the Goldilocks right. zone, um, because if you sort of say it in an offhand manner, mm-hmm. people have all these visions of like, oh, lush forests and like right. yeah. beautiful streams of water and everything. But it's literally just. The temperature is correct for there to be liquid water mm-hmm. on that planet. But as you said, it doesn't right. mean that there's liquid water or life on those planets. Correct. Now, how do you suppose that number, and we can talk about Kepler and we can talk about Tess, but how, just real quickly, how do you suppose that number, 4,000, how do you suppose that will change over the course of your lifetime? Do you foresee that number just like blowing up? just exponentially large the way that almost the almost the way LIGO is experiencing right now where they get a detection like every two days it seems like with observing observing round number three do you expect that to be the case where this becomes like a rare thing to a they're everywhere they're literally everywhere I think yeah we're we're in line for that kind of trajectory because Kepler detected in the thousands of exoplanets Mm -hmm. and then TESS which is the replacement for Kepler is predicted to uh, detect in the tens of thousands. So we're increasing by an order of magnitude every generation. So whatever replaces TESS um, might end up being able to find hundreds of thousands of exoplanets. We're going to have to start getting some really, really good telescope eyes to start start looking very, very far away, uh, just because mm-hmm. it's going to get very, very difficult to look 
at these faraway stars and the changes in their brightness and everything. But astronomers are pretty clever and we figure out ways to like improve our instrumentation. So I think it's like an order of magnitude improvement every time we have a new generation. So I, I still think there's like lots of room to grow in, in our catalog. Yes, yeah, so it's worth talking about how these telescopes actually work. Te Kepler was an amazing telescope. It observed, I had to look this number up, and it boggled my mind, 530,000 stars during its nine years in in orbit. That is a lot of stars. And, and when it looks at those stars, what is it looking for? How do we detect exoplanets by looking at, at a star? So all that Kepler really has is a sensor that detects how bright these stars are. So it tracks the brightness of these stars over time. And uh, it looks for dips or dimming of the brightness of these stars. And because it tracks the brightness over a long period of time, it can find if these dips in the brightness are periodic. And if it is periodic, that's an indication that something is blocking the light of that star at a regular interval, which looks a lot like the orbiting an orbiting planet that's blocking the star at a periodic interval. And so really all it's doing is like at every at any given moment saying okay the star is at 100% brightness, 100% brightness, 100% brightness, 99.991% brightness, 99.199 like 2% mm -hmm. brightness. And then so we can make these light curves and we find how what, what the interval is of these dips. And that gives us information on the period of the planet as it orbits, the size of the planet as it orbits. So for the transit method, that's about what you can get in terms of information. But mm -hmm. there's lots of interesting follow-up studies you can do using other telescopes and other methods. But transit, this is called the transit method, and that is by far the most effective way to do it. Because you can observe a ton of stars at the same time and look for these dips in brightness all at the same time instead of just focusing on one star at a time now i've done shows where i've talked about exoplanets before i've done planetarium shows where i've talked about exoplanets to little kids and to adults and one of the common questions i get that i'd, I'd like for you to address is people say well it takes the earth you know a year to orbit around the sun so how does kepler it it, it stares at these stars and it looks for periodic dips in brightness but how can it stare at the star for th three years to find three dips? How can it stare at the star for four years to find four dips? You know how, in, in other words, it seems like it would have to stare at one star for a very long time in order to observe a planet. Then that is exactly why there's a bias in our catalog of exoplanets. Um, unfortunately, we are more sensitive to planets that are very close to their stars and thus orbit a lot faster around mm -hmm. their stars because then the dips can happen every few days. It can go really, really fast and then Kepler can get lots and lots of data in, in lots and lots of dips in a short period of time. Right. We've also been able to find some longer period planets because Kepler, depending on you know its orientation, where, where it's looking in the sky, it can go back to certain places, but then there are gaps in the data, so that's not ideal either. But because of the fact that we, we're looking for these dips, we're more sensitive to stars that are having these dips a lot faster, a lot more frequently. Mm -hmm. So most of the, the exoplanets that we found 
are very close to their star and moving very fast. Right. What other biases do we have when we look for for exoplanets using the transit method? There, There's a, a list of inherent biases. I don't know them all off the top of my head, but this is one of them. The fact that we tend to find planets that are really close to their stars, which is a problem if your goal is to look for just planets that could be potentially habitable, right? That's right. Then you're having a, a, a real problem in that you're finding, you know, Mercury, like, well, that's not even true. You're not finding Mercury because you probably wouldn't be able to detect it. So it's so tiny. You're finding big planets close to the star, but you're also biased to just finding big planets in general, right? That's right, because um, Kepler has a really sensitive light detector, but even when you have a big planet, the, the planet is going to be many thousands of times smaller than its star. So even if you have something that's very sensitive as a light detector, you still need something that's pretty big, a planet that's pretty big, that's going to block a substantial amount of light on the star. So something more like a Jupiter that's blocking a pretty big chunk of the star light Mm-hmm. It's going to be easier to detect than if we have something like an Earth or like even worse, like a Mars or a Mercury passing in front of the star because the amount of light that it's blocking is so small. And unfortunately, when you're looking at these light curves that you're making from Kepler, it's not all beautiful because there's noise that, it's, that is inherent in the instrument on Kepler yeah. and you have noise on, on the camera and you know just from ambient space and temperature fluctuations and the movement of, of the telescope itself so if it's something that's very small a small planet the dimming can just be lost in the noise so that's why we're more sensitive to something like Jupiter and something mm-hmm. that's very close to the Sun so that the type of exoplanet we're the most sensitive to we call them hot Jupiters because they're big like Jupiter but they're close into the Sun so they're hot so Hot Jupiters. Yes. We're we're very good at spotting hot Jupiters. Right. And unfortunately, we're not living on a hot Jupiter. We're Um, not. No, hot Jupiters are not a very uh, friendly place to live on. Right. But if you you read, like, you know, the classic Carl Sagan books, then he goes through a few scenarios where he has this, like, brilliant mind for – he had this brilliant mind for imagining the type of life that could live on a different variety of planets – and he would talk about these creatures that would like float through the gas of Jupiter. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever ever read. I think it was in Cosmos. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah, but you know, so I don't know. Maybe if you could imagine some creative alien life forms, then you could have them on. But yeah, we're the point is we're not going to be on a hot Jupiter. That's right? right. You wouldn't expect life that is biologically similar to us to exist on a hot Jupiter. Now you're also biased in another way, and it's that the orbits have to be aligned with your viewing angle, right? That's right, exactly. So the universe is a three-dimensional space, mm-hmm. which is, is good for the most part. Um, but that means that when we are looking at these systems of planets orbiting around stars, they could have any kind of inclination or orientation with regards to us. It's totally random, essentially. But they need to be inclined enough such that the plane of orbit of the planet crosses our line of sight or our line mm-hmm. of view of the star because if we're seeing something that's like completely face on essentially, and then the stars in the middle and then the planets are just going around it, yeah. um, we wouldn't see any of the light being blocked. But luckily we are able to spot some of those planets using some of the other methods, but for right. transit, that's completely useless for us. And yeah. it ends up being that about only 1% of, of exoplanet systems have an inclination that is good enough for us to spot with a transit. Only 1%. 
Yeah, about 1%. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you if a statistical analysis like that had been done. And it's only yeah. 1%. It's pretty, well, yeah. So that's, wow. that's why when you're thinking Kepler found 4,000 in a small amount, but like there's probably like 100 times more. It's uh-huh. just we couldn't spot them because of the inclination issue. Wow. that that That's one of those numbers that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't thinking 1%. I was thinking like 40%. 30%, but 1%. I hope I'm not lying to you, but I seem to recall it's 1%. Oh, man, I don't know. Honestly, you could be lying to me, and I, I would have no <laughs> idea. So, I'm not but, willfully lying to you. Yeah, that's well, that's what counts, right? It's okay yeah. to lie. Just don't do it on purpose. Yes. Yeah. Now, Tess, Kepler has been, I don't know if decommissioned is the word. Did it run out of fuel? I'm not sure what actually happened to it. Um, yeah, it basically ran out of fuel, uh, which meant that you couldn't really control it anymore. Right. But Kepler, Kepler had some issues with its gyroscopes, um, pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And so at some point we lost the ability to point it anywhere we wanted. And that started the phase two of its mission called K2. Yeah. So it extended its lifetime by quite a bit by, you know, us trying to rejig the direction that we wanted to look at and sort of adjusting what the goals were. But yeah, in late October last year, it ran out of fuel. So now it's just sort of spiraling out of control very slowly. I look forward to a day when we can begin when space commerce is to the point and space flight is to the point where we can recover some of these things. Yeah. And then sell them on eBay. Yeah. Well, hopefully not sell them on eBay, but yes, I mean, yeah, there will absolutely be people like collecting like nuts and bolts from the Apollo program and trying to sell them on eBay. That will happen. But mm-hmm. I would like, to, I would love if we could like rescue the Mar- Martian rover, one of them, one of the dead ones, and yeah. then have it in a museum somewhere. That yeah. that to me is like a really cool idea. I don't really <laughs> like museums. I'm not a big fan of museums, but that would make me attend a museum. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or have to have Kepler to to get Kepler back. That's just like a really cool concept to me. Now, mm-hmm. Tess, Tess. The transiting exoplanet, help me. The two S's. Survey. Survey satellite. satellite. I yeah. got it. I would have got it. I should have just went with my gut. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Tess. Tess is replaced. I don't know if replace is the right word. Uh, but but it is a new telescope that is aiming to do a very similar thing that Kepler did. But But as you said, it gets an order of magnitude better at detection. Can you talk about what is so good about Tess compared to te- compared to Kepler? And why we expect this thing to detect not just thousands, but tens of thousands of exoplanets. So the the sensors on it are going to be much more sensitive, for one. I mean, it's, you know, new generation. It was made 10 years after Kepler. So all the instrumentation on it is is better mm-hmm. and more, more cutting edge. But one super interesting thing about TESS is that it's going to be looking, interestingly enough, at like a smaller bubble around the sun, mm-hmm. um, but in all directions. And its goal is really to find an exoplanet, an Earth-like exoplanet. So that's why it needs to be more sensitive because it needs to be able to spot these smaller planets in the solar neighborhood. And to some degree, I mean, finding these exoplanets is super interesting in and of itself. And it's good to start filling out the lower mass part mm-hmm. of our sort of exoplanet catalog um but these are theoretically exoplanets we could get to in a few generations if we were to figure out a way to like send uh, a probe or uh, 
depending on who you talk to, uh, a, a laser sail. Yeah, nanobots, light sail, something. Nanobots, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. So, so they're, you know, five, ten light years away. So possibly we would be able to send something to them and it would reach it in like a few tens of thousands of years. I was going to say the math, unfortunately, doesn't work out so that we'll ever be able to reap the benefits of such a thing. But the not human ourself. race will. The human the race human... will. Yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, but not not you and I. Yes. I'm a little selfish in that regard. Like I would I would like if I could reap some benefits or like scientific good benefit. Not like I want money. Not like we're going to go mine gold and bring it back. But, like, I would like to get that information. I would love to see direct, close-up images of exoplanets that we could actually travel to, send nanobots to, use a light sail to get to. I know light sail technology is progressing. Uh, light sail 2 just got deployed. And that will help us learn a lot about light sail technology and whether or not it's feasible to go long distances. It's probably yeah. not because you're, you have a giant sheet that you're trying to blast through the orc cloud and yeah generally... last i heard was that the laser was setting the sails on fire oh that's good that's a good design so... <laughs> yeah i mean it's a problem that we have to fix yes but uh yeah there's still some work to be done in that area right the most it's definitely not humans right you're never going to be able to i shouldn't say never never say never but it's not feasible humans require too much stuff we get hungry we get thirsty we get bored. We need to be entertained. We are not fit for long-term space travel, so it will definitely be some form of robot. I know, like, I mean, nano... Unless, unless we figured out a sort of Noah's Ark... Yes. ...multi-generational kind right. of situation. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also not on the cusp of figuring that stuff no. out. <laughs> Very fun. We can't even... We can't even, like, get through a single day without arguing with each other. Yeah, that's I'm right. I'm not sure we're going to be sending... Yeah. No, I agree. But... These these telescopes are incredibly interesting, and they like they blow my mind. They humble me so much. And when I tell people those numbers, like four thousand exoplanets, test plans to find twenty thousand exoplanets, that those numbers, I don't even think that they register in people's brain when I tell them. Like it's such a unfeasible number that I I, I don't even like I don't get wonderment out of people when I tell them that. I literally just get like. Almost like a blank stare, like, wait a minute, really? Yeah, it's astronomy in general, not just exoplanets, just astronomy. The scale of things, the distances between objects, the size of things, mm -hmm. the, the like amount of time that it's taken to put everything together is just so far removed from our day-to-day -day life Yes, that people try to wrap their minds around it, but it's still very difficult. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and to make it even more crazy, we will soon be soon with quotes with hard quotes soon be launching the jwst the ah! james webb space telescope okay hey, my heart hurt <laughs> can oh. you describe the timeline of the j it's cost 10 billion now right yes 10 right. billion us dollars i think and i i'm not sure what the the other i don't i'm not sure who all we're working with the us is working with on the jwst i'm not sure the canada Yes, Canada and and Europe. Europe. Okay, I didn't. I knew it was Canada. Obviously, that's why you're here. But uh, I didn't know if there was anyone else. Um, explain the timeline so far, because this thing has been proposed and has been being worked on for a long time. I visited it back in 2015, maybe. I went to Goddard Space Flight Center in in near DC, and I got to hang out with it, if you will. Um, I okay. got to see it. I got to to talk to people about it. 
and it's still very much in the building phase. Um, or maybe maybe not. It's in building. the testing phase. Okay, testing. The but test. then we test, and we're like, mm, this thing doesn't work very well. And then they build a new component, right? Is is there's a little bit of that going on? A little bit, but yeah. but testing has been going well for the last year. Okay. La- last year there was a test where things went a little awry. What was and, the test? Um, I don't remember. It was a vibration test, oh, vibration and acoustic test. I think I did hear about this. And uh, basically a bunch of screws who were loose yeah. fell off. Okay. Fair um, and, and at that point, there was some restructuring done. NASA um, maybe took too much of a step back mm-hmm. from its contractors, uh, and it's sort of gone and increased its supervision of all the steps. But we redid that test in February, and it went well this time. And we've finished a few other tests, and we are on the point of assembling. The The telescope has been in two parts mm-hmm. for a little while, the spacecraft part with the sun shield, and then the, the mirror part with the instruments. But now the two parts will be joined together, and then it's going to go through another round of tests because that's how it's going to be in space. It's going to be in one piece together. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure that it can survive vibrations, um, sound waves, um, all the extreme temperatures it's going to be undergoing, that the vacuum of space. So it's going to have all those tests, and then after that, we should be ready to ship it off to the launch pad. And that yeah, is the scariest a, part oh, for me. Oh, yes, that is very scary. Well, getting to the launch pad or when it actually launches? Both. Both. <laughs> Getting to the launch pad. I remember when I was at Goddard. I don't. Where is the James Webb right now? Do you know? Right now it's in California. Okay. How did they get it to California? Um, I mean, so from like Goddard yeah. to and like Houston and everything. Yeah. Because it was in pieces. Um, they had like very large transport vehicles. Yeah, I remember when I was at Goddard. They were talking to to me about how they have to transport it, and they were t- saying that they have to. Certain pieces can go on airplanes. Certain pieces have to go on boat because yeah, it's yeah. not a good idea to drive them on a road. Certain pieces yeah. have to be like driven, but they have to have like a, um, like a essentially like security. Security is not the word, but like an entourage essentially of, of people following along across the country. It's, yeah. um, a, a very, very interesting. So now we're safely in California. Yes. Which I know that even when I was at Goddard in 2015, they were a little worried about the transportation even in California. Mm-hmm. So now we have to transport it to the launch pad and eventually send it up. Can you describe its unique launch? It'll be the first of its kind in the way that it will deploy. Because That's it's right. a huge thing. I, how how tall is it? How big is it? I was there. And it's I... 6.5 meters across yeah. and like maybe, I don't know, like 10 meters tall. Mm-hmm. The sun shield, like in the other direction, is the size of a tennis court. So however big that is. <laughs> yes. So huge. The answer so huge. is like huge, right? And Very you can't large, launch yeah. it. You can't launch this giant, for the Americans, that's a 20 by 30 feet, essentially. Rounding up and rounding down. Mm-hmm. Rounding all sorts mm-hmm. of ways. You can't launch a 20 by 30 feet, like, fragile, giant shield into space. That That's yeah. not going to work. So There are no rockets large enough to fit that inside. Right. So how do we yeah. do it? How's it going to be done? So the way that we do it is that we do a little bit of origami. Mm-hmm. We build the telescope in such a way that the the sun shield is sort of scrunched up on itself. 
the big primary mirror has foldable components. So uh, it folds up into three parts and then that folds down. So it's all folded up into like a little, little ball, if mm -hmm. you will. And that fits into the Ariane 5 rocket. And then when that will be launched up, all of the rocket components and the boosters and everything, you know, fall off. And then while it's careening through space towards its final destination, like a million miles away from Earth, it is unfolding. And mm -hmm. I didn't actually know this up until a few years ago. I thought that it was going to, like, safely stay stowed mm -hmm. and then go to its final destination, Lagrange Point 2. Yep. And then there, once it's there, it'll be like, okay, I... It's, there's an all clear, everything is good, uh -huh. now it can unfold. No, 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 it's going to start unfolding as it's moving towards L2. So that, for me, is particularly scary. Yeah, I didn't know that, actually, until you just said it. Because I had the exact yeah. same impression, that it would go to L2 and it would... Nope, it would simultaneous. See, that is terrifying to me. Because you have yes. a, literally a $10 billion project floating through space where any number of things could happen. Um, It, it has to unfold and... You have this, it's like 82 moving parts or some insane number of moving parts. Do you know the number? It's like, like 190 actuators. Oh, so way lot larger than I thought. So it has to go through this crazy unfolding procedure. Do you know how big like the sh the um module that it will be launched on is? Like how small does it curl up? The Ariane 5? I don't remember the the dimensions of the Ariane 5 off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But it will it will be a really tiny thing. And then become a really big thing. And it has to do that within the vacuum of space where it's incredibly cold. Where yeah. it's hard, not hard to simulate on Earth, but but many things could go wrong. Um, yeah. That's why it's and taken I mean, so long. That's why we're doing all the tests. Yes. But it's pretty impressive. Like there are these like just giant vacuum tanks mm -hmm. that accommodate the big mirror. And then you just like shove this thing in and then you like suck all the air out of that, you know, giant tank to simulate the vacuum of space. So just just the testing technology that's been, you know, produced to try and test this giant telescope has been really impressive. Yes, it, it, it has. And, you know, when we launched Hubble, we had a problem with one of the mirrors. When we turned Hubble yes. on for the first time, we had a problem with one of the mirrors. But we were thankfully able to repair it because it was in low Earth orbit. This will not be mm -hmm. the case with the JWST. No. If it doesn't and, work. And I mean, Hubble... Yeah. Hubble was not tested right. thoroughly. Mm -hmm. And maybe they were banking on the fact that it was in low Earth orbit and astronauts could do maintenance and repair work on it if needed. But that's why we're sort of a little bit skittish to, mm -hmm. you know, launch it prematurely. We want to make sure everything is working well because otherwise it is bad news. Yeah, and one of the things that scares me as a scientist is projects like this, when they succeed, they do fantastic things for this entire field. They do fantastic things. They generate interest from young people. They generate interest from high school students. They generate interest from lawmakers and people, and you get a resurgence of funding in science. If they fail, though, then all of a sudden you have a $10 billion, um, you know, investment that that doesn't pan out it doesn't give you anything now of course as scientists we say but wait it gave us tons of stuff we developed all these new testing mechanisms and we came up with beautiful ways to build telescopes in the future um but if it fails i fear that that will will impact scientific funding for a long time 
What do you what do you think about that? And obviously you you probably are like don't talk about we're not even going to talk about it failing. Let's not talk <laughs> about that possibility. Yeah. Which is fine. I I'm not saying it will. I'm no, in no way am I detract I'm not being a detractor and be like this is a waste of money. I think it's fantastic. And I hope it works and I hope so much that it works. Um but but I do like to think about the way scientific funding has historically been and we've gotten lucky. I talked to Ray Weiss, the Nobel laureate for uh, the developer of LIGO, and he talked about how that was a $1.1 billion investment from the NSF, the largest funded project they've ever done. And had it failed, had it not detected gravitational waves, it would have impacted every future project that was ever proposed. Every risky yeah. project that ever got proposed would have now been looked at with a new level of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. It's true that in the mission, we're a little bit you know, we try to not talk negatively too much, mm-hmm. but the people who are doing the project management need need to keep that in mind. The scientists maybe can put their blinders on a little bit more, and that's that's okay. Um, I'm sort of like at the nexus of that because I'm a scientist, but also because I'm an outreach scientist, mm-hmm. I have to be prepared for media and journalists and lawmakers and the public in general to ask me those kinds of questions. And trust me, we are like building a giant communication contingency plan. If something goes wrong, what do we do? What do we say? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we spin this? Um, It's interesting when you're working on a flagship mission that where the stakes are so high, because indeed if something goes wrong, then everything, it has repercussions for decades to come, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, if, if James Webb didn't work, it puts W first in jeopardy. It puts whichever of the other four flagship missions from NASA that are being decided on right now, it puts that in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. It puts things like international collaborations in jeopardy, yeah. essentially. Um, when you think about something like the Mars rover program, and and all the landers, oh, they have less than a fifty percent success rate. Right. They've still managed to keep the momentum, and people, I think, don't turn around and say, "Oh, why are we wasting all this money on Mars?" You know, like mm-hmm. less than fifty percent of these landers are are not exploding, like they're not they're landing correctly. But obviously, because it's such a high bill, and because there have been so many delays. We're already under a lot of scrutiny. So there's no easy answer to that. There's no really answer to that. Right. We yeah. just do the best that we can. We are very aware, not only of the responsibility we have for this mission, but for space astronomy in our different countries in general. And and we just do our best and hope for the best. But I, at the same time, you have to take these kinds of risks. I was just going to say that. I think that risk is imperative in science. Yeah. You know, I I had an, a, a discussion with um, someone who is a CRISPR, CRISPR scientist, um, biologist. And I was, I was saying this similar thing that, you know, there's a point where testing has to stop and you just have to try something. Now, I'm not saying we should go and start editing genomes. But I'm saying in the history of science... The most monumental strides have happened based off of risks, whether mm-hmm. it be the Apollo missions, whether it be Hubble, whether it be hopefully the James Webb, whether it be LIGO. The most monumental strides happen off of us taking a risky idea, putting forth our best effort, and seeing if it pans out. 
And I think that at some point you just have to do that. So I'm looking forward to James Webb, the eventual launch. But when it does get there, and it will, it'll get there. And it'll turn on successfully. How will it help us in the world of exoplanets? For exoplanets, especially in Canada, it'll be super exciting because there there are four instruments on James Webb, mm-hmm. all infrared. Some are cameras, some are spectrographs. Um, but the Canadian instrument uh, is especially well designed to study the atmosphere of exoplanets. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for these Earth-like planets. Um, it's sort of hard to look at, you know, their their rocky composition if that's the case. But because an atmosphere is transparent or translucent, we can study the light of the star that passes through that atmosphere of the exoplanet. And we can do sort of like a a differential spectroscopy where we can figure out the molecules and the the composition essentially of of those exoplanet atmospheres. So for the first time, we're going to have like a really, really good tool to tell us, okay, these planets in like the TRAPPIST-1 system and this Mm -hmm. other system, um, we have, you know, potentially water and, you know, we have these different molecules. Um, because James Webb isn't like a gigantic mirror, 6.5 meters is still very large, but now we're starting to talk about 30 plus meter telescopes on earth. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a good synergy between, you know, James Webb and space and these extremely large telescopes on earth. But we're going to be able to look at the atmosphere of these exoplanets really well for the first time ever. And that's going to give us, instead of just like, doing sort of number counting of all these exoplanets, like, okay, we detected one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. We mm-hmm. can start actually giving really deep, detailed information on what these exoplanets actually are, what is, what's in their atmosphere, what they're made of. So we're starting the field of characterization of exoplanets rather than just detection. And, and that is starting now. And James Webb will be imperative for that. Which is a really exciting exciting effort an exciting change of pace now are we going to be able to do any direct imaging i know jwst will be operating in the infrared so we're not going to be getting beautiful optical pictures of earth but will it be used in any direct imaging capabilities yeah there will be some direct imaging capabilities um the nearest instrument which is the canadian instrument has a a mode Mm -hmm. that allows uh the the imager on it to see with very very high resolution two objects that are very close together using a technique called interferometry mm-hmm. so we'll sort of it's the technique that was used to image the first picture of a black hole ever yeah. in april well it was released in april but but done over the last few years so using that same technique it's going to be able to take pictures potentially of exoplanets but also exoplanets in formation in what we call protoplanetary disks so Mm -hmm. sort of baby solar systems that allows us to find out more about exoplanets in general but also about how our own solar system was born so there will be some direct imaging capabilities um but really i think for for direct imaging what's coming up that's going to be truly earth shattering is when we start coming out with these 30 and 40 meter Mm -hmm. telescopes that are going to have like coronagraphs on Mm -hmm. them and w first will potentially also have a coronagraph on it. So it'll have some good exoplanet imaging capabilities as well. Do you prepare yourself for that? Do you like an example, like a, a young kid, a young girl, a young person who wants to play professional sports, like basketball or something like they might 
picture in their head. Like, I want to be in the NBA. I want to be in the WNBA. I want to win the championship. I want to be the MVP of the league. Do you ever sit back and, and picture, like, what it will be like when we see the first direct image? Like, I, I want to see that. Do you ever picture the, like, imagine the excitement you'll feel? It's not the the MVP of the WNBA, but it, it is for you on your side of the scientific spectrum. Like this is a monumental discovery. Do you think about how you'll feel? Do you think about that experience and that accomplishment when it happens? Well, I've I've had the the benefit of having feelings like that recently. Um, like when the black hole image came out, mm-hmm. because my my background is more in in galaxies and extragalactic right. astrophysics and and supermassive black holes. When mm-hmm. I saw that, even though I wasn't part of that team directly, I still had that that sort of like oh my god, wow, yeah, moment. I so, I did too. Planet, that was the first time in my life I would say where I felt. Like the experience that I'm talking to you about, that's the first time I've ever felt it in science. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that for LIGO. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had it really strongly for, for the black hole one, especially because M87, which is the yeah. the galaxy where the, the black hole that was imaged uh, was taken, mm-hmm. was uh, a really big component of my PhD thesis. I see. M87 like caused me a lot of problems. The black hole caused me a lot of problems because mm-hmm. it like makes everything very messy in the center. Yep. And so it was it was a special moment, even though I wasn't, you know, directly part of that team to sort of look at in the eye of the beast that I've been studying <laughs> in a more abstract way mm-hmm. for so long. But I I actually have had the benefit of talking to the the lead of the team that imaged the first exoplanet system ever. Mm-hmm. So HR 8799, which you might have seen the like the animation or the GIF. Yeah. There's like four exoplanets and you can see them orbiting mm-hmm. around. Yep. Um, that was first imaged by uh, a Canadian team. So Christian Marois, who's uh, at the University of Victoria, David Lafreniere, who's at the University of Montreal, and, and the lead, the supervisor of those two was René Doyon, who is the director of the institute mm-hmm. where I work and the University of Montreal professor. And and I remember he he I was asking him like how did that feel that night? And he said like when he first saw the image, like he couldn't believe it. He he was leaning back on his chair and he stared up at the ceiling like the entire night mm-hmm. because he he couldn't even believe that it had happened. Yeah. When when he saw the picture, he thought something is wrong. There's no way like mm-hmm. I think there's almost a sense of disbelief at the start that you're part of this momentum, momentous occasion. So I don't know. Hopefully one day I'll be able to take part in something like that. But yeah, to see something, we're such visual creatures mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And so to, to really see a picture of something that's so abstract is, is really magical. It is. And that, that experience you're talking about, that is very prevalent in the scientific community from what I gather. That feeling of like, it's not just disbelief that you found something you you can't fathom finding, but it's literal disbelief in that, wait a minute, there has to be something wrong with this data. Yeah, it's like a legitimate scientific skepticism. <laughs> yes, right. You're skeptical about your own success. Yeah. And this was true for, Li- like for LIGO when they detected the first, the first ever uh, gravitational wave. They went through systematically. They figured, okay, there was probably some undergraduate who messed up and inserted a signal into the detector that he wasn't supposed to. 
Then, then once they ruled out all of that, they went and they started contacting ex-employees that were disgruntled. They had like a short list of people that they were like, these are the people we're pretty sure they hacked us. We think they hacked us. <laughs> so they did that. Then there were a few engineers that they were like interrogating, like saying, I, did you do something? Did you insert a signal? <laughs> it took them weeks before they started to actually, the last conclusion that they came to was that it was real. Like yeah. it was the very last thing. Mm-hmm. And eventually they came to, to that conclusion. It's a very common feeling in the, in the scientific community. And yeah. I actually think I sometimes get overzealous. I sometimes don't go through, and maybe that's a learned skill that after 60 years, you start to scrutinize your, your work much more. But, you know, as a, as a young scientist, I notice like, um, I don't necessarily have that. I tend to get excited easily. And maybe as you're, you know, in the field, maybe as you're a scientist longer, you, you start to get more skeptical of your own ability to do things correct. I don't know what it is. I think especially when it's discoveries by these huge teams, yeah. there are so many little points right. in the, the chain of command where something could have gone wrong yep. that you need to sort of go through the, the whole chain. But if you're a graduate student, you're the only one that's messing with your code, maybe you figure, okay, it's, mm. it's, it's real, it's real. But I think there's also some amount of... of as as you get older, you become more skeptical, perhaps. Yeah. So what? So you mentioned that JWST will be in the infrared. We'll observe in the infrared. Why was this particular decision made to make it observe in the infrared? So we initially James Webb was supposed to launch considerably earlier mm-hmm. than than now. Um, when the project was started in Canada, uh, in like 2000, a little bit before 2000, it was supposed to launch in 2008. Um, really? It, I didn't know. 2000, yeah, 2008 oh, <laughs> was the initial launch date, and then it moved to 2010, and 2013, 2016, etc. And slowly, um, it's now launching in 2046. That's the yeah. news we're breaking here today. 20 March 30th, 2021 is the planned launch date. Um, but the plan was to have considerable overlap with Hubble. So Hubble is already looking uh, in the near ultraviolet, the visible, and a little bit of the very near infrared. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't want just another visible light right. telescope. We wanted there to be a good synergy between Hubble and James Webb. Um, and we wanted to probe specific things with James Webb. Uh, so there, there are specific scientific goals and exoplanets is a really big one and the infrared is the best to study exoplanets because um planets glow more brightly Mm -hmm. in in the infrared than in the visible and the majority of stars which are redder than the sun glow more brightly in the infrared as well Mm -hmm. so uh james webb can be more sensitive to like a different branch of stars right so another big thing that we wanted to do with james webb was to look really really far back in the universe some of the first galaxies that were ever produced after the Big Bang. And even though those galaxies shone very brightly in the visible and the infrared and the ultraviolet when they first started emitting light, because of a phenomenon called redshift, which is the stretching of light due to the expansion of the universe mm-hmm. as light travels across space, by the time the light of those very first galaxies reaches us and Webb, that ultraviolet light has been stretched to the infrared. So you actually need an infrared telescope to be sensitive to the first galaxies ever created. So there were very specific scientific goals that we were hoping to reach with this new telescope, and it made the most sense to build infrared instruments to reach those goals. 
I see. And now it's important to, to be able to look back further than anything is, further than Hubble is able to see into the very, because we do have a sort of a, a quandary as it is about early galaxy evolution. How do we get the galaxy populations we see today? How do we get, you study galaxy clusters. How do we get these large galaxy clusters where every galaxy seems to have a supermassive black hole in its center? That is millions of solar masses, millions of times the mass of the sun with no feasible well, there's there's many feasible explanations. There are, but there with, are theories. Yes, yeah. with no concrete um, theoretical framework to explain how that could happen. So it's very important for us to be able to look back and see how were galaxies behaving at the earliest of times, at the mm-hmm. very, very earliest of times. Yeah, because the earlier universe seems to be quite a bit different from from the present universe than mm-hmm. the local universe. Galaxies were a lot more active. They were producing stars at a much higher rate. Things were much more active. Things were interacting together a lot more. And in terms of studying supermassive black holes, they are millions and billions of times larger than a normal black hole or a stellar black hole. Um, and we have been able to observe stellar black holes up to several tens of times larger than the sun. But that's a huge leap between something that's like 50 times the mass of the sun and like 5 billion times the mass of the sun. Mm-hmm. But we, we're not spotting any of these sort of intermediate black holes. Something is going on at some part, some point in the universe mm-hmm. where a whole lot of action and a whole lot of evolution is taking place. And it's been very difficult to pinpoint where that is because we haven't been able to look far enough into the past or because our instruments have been have not been sensitive enough or large enough to look at these like very faint faraway galaxies it's very hard to study these first galaxies and even with a huge mirror you have to use tricky little techniques like gravitational lensing mm-hmm. to try and like magnify the light from these faraway galaxies so it's very tricky to observe something that's that far away and that small. Yes, but I am really excited to to see what we can learn about the early universe when JWST finally does launch. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, supermassive black holes is a avenue of research I do, as well as binary neutron star mergers. And so you, you do have this lapse you're seeing. You know, we know how to, we know how to produce stellar mass black holes. Mm-hmm. Black holes the size of the sun, if you will, the mass of the sun. We know how to produce those. You merge two binary, you merge two neutron stars together, and you can create a black hole. The black hole will be kind of tiny, you know, one solar, one times the mass of the sun, two times the mass of the sun, something like that. We have no mechanism for creating a black hole that is billions of times the mass of the sun. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, you. Some people have said, well, what if, what if you can create a tiny black hole in the early universe and slowly it will accrete matter over time. That the math doesn't seem to work out on on that. You have to have a really really high accretion rate. The black hole has to be eating a lot of lot of material, mm-hmm. um, it, it, and that's not what we've seen up until now, right? And so there's like this weird lapse in our understanding. I would say it's one of the biggest lapses in our understanding of galactic evolution over time. But you study galaxy clusters, right? Yeah. Do galaxy clusters? We talked about exoplanets humbling you. Do galaxy clusters blow your <laughs> mind? <laughs> Interestingly enough, because I've been studying galaxy clusters for over 10 years now, I feel like 
Um, I have that thing that scientists get as they remain in a certain field. Not necessarily that we get jaded, mm -hmm. but it becomes more normal. Yeah, desensitized. Yeah. Desensitized to a certain degree. So exoplanets, I've only really been in for the last year, mm -hmm. working at this institute at the University of Montreal. So when I think of like all these exoplanets and like being able to take a picture of them and you know trying to find life, I'm still like very, my mind is still very mm -hmm. illuminated by all of this. But, you know, I work on the Virgo cluster, which is one of the richest uh, galaxy clusters around. And so you have over 4,000 galaxies. Sure, if I sit down and I think, okay, 4,000 galaxies times 100 billion stars per galaxy, and then that's only the number of stars and luminous matter. You have to, like, multiply that by, you know, 10 to try to get all the matter because you're mm -hmm. including dark matter now and all that kind of stuff. Then, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's kind of really insane. But I've, I've almost been a little bit more desensitized to yeah. the, the sheer size of these galaxy clusters. It's, it feels more familiar to mm -hmm. me. When you yeah. sit down and you do do that, that calculation in your head, what feeling does that instill in you? Because for me, it instills anxiety. Like I had a, like a borderline panic attack <laughs> at my desk like a few weeks ago because I was sitting there. And I'm staring out the window, and I'm just looking at the sky, and I'm thinking, man, we're in the Milky Way galaxy. There's like maybe 200 billion stars, yeah, but there's all these other galaxies, and there's clusters of galaxies, and there's, you know, in the observable universe, billions of galaxies, and each galaxy has 100 billion or more stars. And, and it's just like, it instills like this panic, this anxiety, this like, like you're lost in the forest almost, like mm -hmm, that sort of mm -hmm. feeling. Is that the feeling you get? I don't, I don't have, I've had other people tell me that sort of sense of, of dread, sort of like the feeling that you get maybe when you're in the middle of a really dark ocean and you can't see the mm -hmm. bottom or like any like landmass around you. Yeah. You're like in this void essentially. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't really get that sense of anxiety. Uh, I, I find it very humbling, sort of the same way that you said that all the number of exoplanets we've detected is very humbling. And it's easy to say, oh, when you put all those numbers into perspective, you know, no, nothing matters. Maybe, maybe the anxiety that people get is like a little bit of nihilism mm -hmm. where nothing matters. You know, what's the point of like living your life a certain way because ultimately you're just like an insignificant amount of matter in the entire universe. But at the same time, you know, every little bit matters to the things that are around you more locally. So it, it all depends on if you're observing something locally or, you know, on a cosmological scale. Mm -hmm. So cosmologically, we're insignificant, but locally, we're very, very significant. Right. Yes. So I, I try to think about the sense of scales like that mm -hmm. to keep yeah. my feet on the ground. There is a, bit of, a little bit of nihilism, like knowing that you, you were just like on the speck of dust. And if the universe wanted to, it could expunge us, like, now, right? If the I like that. What? And I wish more humans realized that. So you, because then yes. maybe we would appreciate what we have more. Correct. I 100% <laughs> agree. I think that there's a silver lining to that, to that dreadfulness of knowing that you're out here in the middle of nowhere. And the dreadfulness, or the, the, the good thing about it, is that exact thing you just talked about. That, wait a minute. It's not a bad thing that you're out here seemingly alone. It's a ma magnificent thing that somehow the right conditions came together to create you. 
Mm-hmm. So it's pretty awesome that you're here and you yeah. should utilize your time here to do great things. That's so, right. Yeah. I get Because at any given point, you know, the rug can be pulled out from under you mm-hmm. and then you won't have any time left. But I understand not, not every, everyone necessarily thinks like that. I've maybe always been a little bit unusual because I know that had I not become an astronomer, I would have become an atmospheric scientist mm-hmm. because I love giant storms and tornadoes and hurricanes. Had I not become that, I would have become a volcanologist because I love volcanoes. I love it when nature kicks our ass. Mm-hmm. I wish it did it. I don't wish that it did it more often, but I think that it's important that humans remember that we are not all controlling and all knowing and all powerful and invincible. Mm -hmm. And so I think because I've had that mentality since I was a little kid and I've been fascinated by that, I don't have the sense of dread. I have more a sense of awe and respect for nature. Mm -hmm. I I had this interesting conversation with Michael, Dr. Michael Poland, and he is the, he is the head scientist studying the Yellowstone volcano um, mm-hmm. and the super volcano and trying to determine what it, when and if it will ever blow up. Yeah. And he was talking about being at Mount St. Helens um, before or after it had erupted the first time and they were monitoring it because it might explode again. And he's, he was talking about how he was on the bank of the volcano. And, um, you know, there were all these warnings about it. No one was supposed to be near it, but he was there doing science. And he looked over and there was a, like a goat eating grass very calmly. And, and that, um, there was like a weird connection there that, that calmed him down. And he said he's not the type of person to believe that like this goat can sense if the volcano is going to explode. But mm-hmm. like it was, it was a something very interesting about like the, the thought of this thing potentially killing you and having no mercy that really connected him to, to, to life. And I, I thought that was a really interesting insight from someone who's mm-hmm. been in that situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it gives me anxiety, but it, it also does, you know, like it's humbling and it inspires me to to go do fantastic things. What about aliens though? <laughs> what about aliens? Aliens because we talked about hundreds of billions of galaxies, hundreds of billions of stars in each. If you had to bet, like if you had to make a bet, if you had to bet your entire wealth, I, my I, entire wealth. Which uh, you're, you know, you're not incredibly old, so maybe it's in the oh, you know what never mind you didn't go to the, you didn't go, you didn't get your education in the United States of America. No that's right I did not get into crippling debt yes. due to so, university. So I would happily bet my entire wealth which would inherently make me money if I ended up losing because I would that's bet right. negative wealth and so I would you know double negative type thing doesn't matter. But if you had to bet is there intelligent life out there somewhere? In Are we including humans? Humans no, unless no, 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 because okay. we're not intelligent. We're burning the planet down, so we don't count. No, of course I'm kidding, but no, out there, out intelligence. beyond. Yes, you're saying intelligent life. Oh, that is so difficult. Do you want me to rephrase the question? Well, if you took out intelligence, okay, then life. I would... Do you think there's like life. microbial yes. life somewhere? I... Yes. Yes. I would bet my wealth on it. Okay, what about like life that is multicellular? Like entire universe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yes, yes. Okay. What about like uh, tiny mammalian creatures? Like they don't have to be mammals, but they don't have to have the... What? A tribble? A tribble? What's that? Oh, you don't watch Star Trek. This gets me in so much trouble. I don't watch any like um, science fiction. Okay. I don't fit into the... So many people like you, Star Wars, Star Trek, 
at all of it. And I, I'm always lost on the references. I'm like, I don't have anything. I'm sorry. I can't. A little put... ball of fur. Yeah. Thing. So that thing. Do you think there's some, some tiny, maybe not human, not, I, I, I don't know if you'd call it, would you call that intelligent? Would you call like a cat intelligent? Well, that's a, that's the thing. I don't know. It's, what is, what is the definition of intelligence? That's a good is question. It, is yeah, it, do you need to be able to, you know, communicate and build like radio dishes to try to communicate with other alien life? Or do you just need to be a sentient being or yeah, it's th- such a, it's a fantastic question, honestly. Yeah. And there's like no answer to it. I, Cause we, we don't even understand. We can't even define intelligence on this planet. Like, That's what right. Is inte- it, we're like, Oh, an octopus is intelligent. A dolphin's intelligent, but the dog's not intelligent. You know, we do, we don't even understand. So yeah. no, it's a fantastic question. Um, but you, so you do think that there's microbes out there somewhere. Yeah. Presumably, if there's microbes out there somewhere, then they can flourish and become whatever it is that we are. Well, potentially, but there's something called the theory of the great filter. I don't know if you are no, familiar with this. No, I'm not. It's so well. It's it's a possible solution to Fermi's paradox. Which do you know what Fermi's paradox is? Yes. Yes. The, in a nutshell, Fermi's paradox is if there are so many aliens, then why is no one talking to us? Right. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the great filter is this idea where uh, like life and civilizations has like several steps of complexity. And there might be a great filter mm-hmm. at some step where almost all of the life gets decimated at this filter because like there's like some catastrophe that happens Mm -hmm. they auto destruct something like that and either humans are before the great filter and so there's like some impending doom coming up or we've passed the great filter but we are one of one in a trillion Mm -hmm. and so no one else can like pass this great filter so maybe there's like some level of complexity that is very hard to attain for life forms, but we don't, you know, this is just a theory yeah, kind of right. thing. Yeah. As you go further and further down that ladder, I think the chances of there being life like that gets smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have, you have that probability going in one direction, but you have the statistics of numbers, the huge numbers yes. of exoplanets in the entire universe that are going in the other direction. So it's just, yep. It's, Competing yeah, yeah, yeah. side. Yeah, you yeah. said one trillion, you know, even if that's the rate, even if that's like, wh- there's a one in a trillion chance of getting to this level of intelligence that we are at. Yeah, the numbers are have, on our side. Yeah, we'd have more than one if that were the case. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. That's something that, that always blows my mind. I, I forget who said the quote, but there's a quote that goes something along the lines of, um, it's terrifying if there's nothing else out there, if we're the only thing, but it's equally terrifying if we're not. And I, I think that that is a, a good quote because it is. It's ter- that's what, the nihilism I was talking about earlier. Like it's terrifying yeah. to think we're the only thing in the whole universe. Yeah, I don't know which one is more terrifying to be honest. And I say that as someone who was scared of aliens as a kid. Were you? I was scared of. I, I had a very traumatizing experience as a child um, because my father watched a lot of Nova on PBS with okay. us, uh-huh. and there was a Nova episode which was documenting supposed alien abductions. But like they were being very critical and scientific about it. But I was like 
six, so mm-hmm. I couldn't really tell the difference. And they had like dramatic reenactments of alien abductions, and I was just traumatized by those dramatic reenactments. Yeah. So I'm not scared of the aliens and the sort of like xenomorph, like H.R. Geiger mm-hmm. alien, but like, you know, big eyed, gray, malicious beings that take you in your sleep uh-huh. kind of thing. Yeah, that freaked me out for a very long time when I was a kid. <laughs> I admittedly was always afraid of like doomsday predictions. Okay. Like, people who would be like, the world is going to end. There was this famous guy who was always saying the world would end on a particular day. Um, but he kept switching the day. Yeah, he kept when switching the, the got day there, because yes, yes, yes. It didn't and end. I was 12 at the time. I think I was 12. I would have been 13. It was in, it was, I was working in an amusement park in central Pennsylvania as a kid. I was like 13. And he had made a prediction about this particular, it was like May 20th or something at a particular time. And I was in the free, I remember I went into the freezer at this amusement park. I worked in the food service to get like a box of fries. Cause of course, you know, I'm a fry cook in high school. Get the box of fries. And as soon as I walk in the freezer, it's right about the time that this thing is supposed to happen and there's like this crazy crack of lightning and i was like well it we're dead (laughs) we're dead he was right the old guy on the radio was right as soon as i walk out of this freezer we're dead it's over and then for the for the 2012 prediction the mayan calendar thing yeah yeah yeah. that scared me i don't i don't if you if someone wants to make a doomsday prediction i get freaked out you don't even need to be credible i just get freaked out interesting yeah i think what we've learned in this episode is i am afraid of my own mortality Apparently. I think that's what we've learned. Yeah. Very anxious about it at the very least. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, varies. What inspired you to be a scientist? You mentioned your dad watched those Nova shows. Yes. So both my parents are engineers. Um, My mother is an aeronautical engineer, and she builds and tests planes. Hmm. And my father was a materials engineer. He's retired now. And uh, he would, like test composite materials essentially and and that was actually a really really nice experience because growing up i had i had a white male father who was mm-hmm. an engineer and i had an, an asian female mother who was also an engineer so to me it like didn't really strike me odd to have a woman engineer or an asian engineer or anything like mm-hmm. that it was like it was all fair game and it was totally normal so that was normalized to me from a very early age and i think a lot of women and girls don't have that benefit of having such a close by scientific role model as a that's a mm-hmm. woman yeah so i think i was in a, an envi- environment and a household which was very pro science and you know my mom would take me to the library every weekend and my dad would always have documentaries playing on on the tv so i was already from the get go in an environment that mm-hmm. where science was very accessible and i always it all stemmed from a fascination with nature and i think that there are lots of different types of kids that grow up to be lots of different types of scientists mm-hmm. but i was never a tinkerer i never wanted to like take a machine and break it down and see how it works and then like put it back together yeah me either i completely i completely know what you're talking about cuz i see those people and i'm yeah. not those people i wasn't that i was i like to sort of sit quietly and look at like squirrels passing by and look mm-hmm. at their behavior and try to figure out okay it just did this now i'm wondering why it did that and then like what is it going to do next and and or looking at like i don't know a mountain or something like that and thinking about the concept of erosion and if i see like 
stratification in the rocks trying to figure out like, well, what does that mean? So I was always a very passive mm-hmm. observer of science, but I was very, always very fascinated by nature and I wanted to understand how nature worked. I thought nature was just so much cooler than people and and I wanted to figure out how it worked in a way that I didn't have to interfere in nature. And I love that about astronomy, especially extragalactic astronomy. It is one of the only sciences that I can think of where the object that I'm studying is not at all modified or changed by the fact that I'm studying it. Mm. Zoologists, when they go out into nature, they go into the environment with the animal, and then that affects to some degree the behavior of the animals. Even a physicist, when you observe an electron, Mm -hmm. just by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, by observing it, you've changed, you've like set... Yeah. the the state of the electron mm-hmm. galaxies i'm seeing light that is you know millions and hundreds of millions of of years old the galaxy doesn't care that i'm looking at it me looking at it is not affecting it at all so there's like a very nice purity about studying these faraway objects i'm seeing nature in its purest state and and i'm hoping to like really understand how it works without me being part of that equation at all yeah, that's a really interesting. You said something really interesting that I want to delve into a little bit. You, I'm curious, do you think you would have become a scientist if you weren't in the situation you were in? If you were instead in a situation where your parents weren't very scientific and maybe your mother wasn't an engineer but was instead like a more stereotypical um, female role in society, like a nurse or something, do you think that you would have been detracted or not even thought about science as like a real achievable thing to do that's so hard to... it's impossible i know i ask impossible I, yeah, questions. It's, yeah it's basically impossible <laughs> that's right impossible questions because um i very much believe in in free will mm-hmm. uh i i believe that you know nature is like nature as in like our genetics is part of who we are and nurture or environment is part of we who we are but there's some little extra something that when you mix those two together there's like a little push where basically like the the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts kind of mm-hmm. thing and so i like to think that there was always a certain spark in me who's yeah. very curious and everything and and I look at my sisters who grew up in the same environment and, mm-hmm. and one is not at all in science. Uh, she's like in, in the arts and entertainment industry and one is science. She's like a, a lab technician essentially, but you know, it's, it's less sort of fundamental research. And so I'm probably the one that ended up the most in science in, in all of us. So I think that having that environment helped a lot and Help let allowed me to flourish without any or, or fewer obstacles mm-hmm. at the very least. The the reason I ask is because I'm interested not in if your parents pushed you into science, but if the fact that you were in like a great supporting household allowed you to actually be the thing you wanted to or, or dest I don't like the word destiny, but were destined to be the thing that you most identified with. And so many kids don't have that mm-hmm. in their life. It's not that they don't have scientific parents; it's that they don't have a support system. You know, and we see a lack. I didn't actually know this until I left my undergraduate university, but there is a discrepancy between male and female scientists, the number of them. Mm -hmm. My university, especially as you go up 
in seniority. Yes. Yeah. My university was not like that. We were incredibly good at a 50-50 split in my uh, astronomy astrophysics department. Like really, really good. What? Yes, I know. And I hadn't known that. I, I wasn't exposed to it. It like didn't exist in my mind. It, it's not something that I saw because I didn't, it wasn't in front of me. Um, and I was surprised to learn about it. And, you know, it's express, especially like, um, there's a lot of bias in terms of proposals, you know, submitting proposals. It, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Priya Natarajan and she, um, she's a cosmologist mm-hmm. at somewhere. MIT? I might be wrong. Columbia? I don't know. She was on the show and we talked about an idea that she helped pioneer that made the Hubble proposals be double blind so that you couldn't see, you know, who the actual proposer was. And it changed over the course of three years. It went from, you know, like a 70 30 split between men and men and women to uh, essentially women actually getting more proposals accepted now than men are. Mm -hmm. Um, this double blind nature. And I, I think that it is a very interesting, um, finding. And I actually, I'd like to get your perspective on this as, as a, maybe this is me talking as a man, but I actually don't think that those results imply inherent sexism. And the reason why is because I actually think there's a different mechanism at play. I think that there's something that happens when you review a proposal where you recognize the name on the proposal and you associate that name with someone who does good work. And so what happens is you tend to get like a top-heavy proposal acceptance. People who are senior end up getting more proposals accepted. And because there's more senior men than there are senior women, um, and that's mostly due, I think, to sexism that existed like in the 60s and 70s, um, then that's actually the mechanism responsible for the discrepancy in the Hubble acceptances. I, I don't know. Do you experience, have you ever felt like you've experienced that in when you submit proposals that, that you're actually being judged based on the fact that you're a woman and not a man? I've never had that feeling directly, but if someone told me that they had that feeling, I, I probably wouldn't have contradicted them. Right. What I, what I've more felt as a woman uh, is not so much related to proposals or the quality of my work, especially because so much of what I do now is is outreach mm-hmm. rather than pure research. Um, but I've seen a lot of comments or perceptions of my my behavior or my personality, which I think is tinted by the fact that I'm a woman. Mm. Um, I'm I'm pretty. Uh, I guess I'm a confident speaker. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't I don't mince words if I disagree with someone, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I'm assertive. I'm a, I'm yeah. a pretty assertive person in general. Uh, and I think that being assertive, if you're a man, is like 100% a good thing. It means that like you're you're confident and like mm-hmm. you own your work and you probably do great work. But when you do it as a woman. Uh, without saying any bad words, there are a lot of bad words that are associated to being an assertive woman. And so I've had comments related to that as jokes, but as like, it's a joke, but not really a joke mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's been more related to, to like personality almost yeah. and, and behavior than it has been to my work. But I could see that, you know, if someone has a perception of me and then the, 
I put in work, they might think, oh, you know, she's really pushy mm -hmm. or whatever. She's only like getting all these other people and collaborators onto the project because she nagged them into doing it and not because the work is actually legitimate or good or something like that. But the, the point that you made is interesting, but at the same time, it, it legitimizes the need for a, a, a double-blind study. I agree. But when you think about like the whole, there have been other studies outside of astronomy where people who are shown the same CV, but one is, you know, mm -hmm. Jane and one is John, people have a certain negative perception of certain characteristics from Jane, but the same characteristics are perceived as good with John. Right. It seems like there's still a little bit of unconscious bias related to just strictly sexism. I think there is. Gender. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is is for sure also a part of it because astronomy is still in a lot of ways an old boys club and the big mm -hmm. names uh don't get questioned very much and when they submit something you can almost sort of gloss over their technical justification for their proposals because you figure well come on this is this person mm -hmm. of course what they're going to do is good so let's just give them the yes. time people yeah. insist to me that that doesn't happen but i what am... people <laughs> People in in the proposal world that are doing reviews or submitting proposals, and but that's that's what makes unconscious bias. Yes, unconscious. yes, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, um, I am convinced that it happens. I'm convinced that you have a lot of name recognition happening inside of those proposal review boards, and I'm also convinced in some senses that if you don't have name recognition, then people pay less attention to your proposal because these people are reading like ten proposals, and each yeah. of the proposals is. 30 pages we are know? all so oversubscribed yes. and and overworked so if you can take if if you, you can feel like you can take a shortcut you will try to take a shortcut yes. and and people, people a way tell to me that doesn't happen but i know that they're wrong yeah. i'm convinced i'm convinced mm -hmm. but anyway i i like talking to you i appreciate you being here i appreciate you taking the time out of your day to educate people thank you um i think that it's something that maybe isn't done enough by the community particularly certain communities in the astrophysics world um, should do. I, I think, actually, I'll say this, that a lot of science denialism can be combated by people doing exactly what you're doing right now, mm -hmm. which is talking to um, outlets that have a reach to the public. And it's not all of it because you can't combat all of it because there's always going to be people who say the Earth is flat. And no matter yeah. what you say, you're not going to change your mind. But if you can out do outreach do good educational outreach and reach as many people as possible and talk to them about this sort of thing. You can get kids interested. Um, I come from a background, I'll say, where where I didn't have science classes in high school. I came from a poor, predominantly white, rural Pennsylvania area um, where the idea of being a scientist was like, it just, no one's a scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm the first scientist ever produced in my region. And it was just... I, serendipity i don't even know how it happened honestly because mm -hmm. it wasn't an it didn't even appear as an option to me and so things like this i appreciate you doing it because it the internet is accessed in all of those regions and if kids who grew up in shitty environments with unsupportive parents can get their hands on something like this and listen to two people talk about something and then blossom a fascination for it i think that outlets like this is what's going to change um young boys and girls in terrible environments um, to actually be able to get inspired to go do something that they don't think is possible. So yeah, I appreciate. I, it. I I totally agree, and I think that it one important thing in outreach is always to be 
rigorous and give real facts and back it up with evidence and everything. But even beyond that, just to show a really big range of what a scientist can look like mm -hmm. and make being a scientist more accessible, that we're just human beings who happen to like scientists. We're not like this special breed of human being. Right. And it, it makes the the barrier to entry to becoming a scientist seem that much smaller because anyone can be a scientist as long as you just have an interest in it. Yes, and that's why I try to intersplice the conversation with life, with us talking about life, mm -hmm. um, to show people that there's not like some... You don't need to... You don't need to be very rigorous or you don't need to be a boring personality or you don't need to be, you know, um, in a certain mold in order to be in this community and yeah, it's exactly. a very open community. So yeah, I appreciate you being here. If there's anything you want to plug before we go, feel free. Um, anything to plug, geez. Uh, Twitter, if you social wanna, media, wherever you Twitter, can. social media. Yeah. You can find me personally on, on Twitter at angry Astro Panda, angry Astro Panda. That is my Twitter. It's quite memorable. Um, my institute uh, is called the Institute for Research on Exoplanets. We have a Facebook and a Twitter. Uh, I Exoplanets or I R Exoplanets, depending on which one you're on. Um, and otherwise, uh, just keep on following James Webb. And uh, hopefully we're going to get that thing up there very soon. Yes. And your website? My website uh, is uh, astropanda.space. Dot space. I love that about your yeah. website. Yeah. Does Squarespace give you that option to just do dot .space? Yes, and they That's weren't cool. thinking of space as in the universe. They were just thinking of the fact that they're Squarespace. Oh, right. But I get to use it as in the universe. Yeah, I should have done yeah. that. Man. Okay, well, we're out. Thank you for listening, everyone, and thank you for being here. Bye. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you for inviting me.